Hello and welcome to another episode of SG Explained. My name is Elliot and joining me today, the ever so lovely Rovic. Hey Rov, how are you doing my man? Good, good. It's good to have you back, Elliot. We've missed you for two episodes, you know. Oh yeah, dude. Thanks for thanks for holding down the fort while I was gone. Yeah, are you feeling better? I, I think our guests were starting to get concerned, like what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, thank you for your concerns. I am uh, oh, in a very good spot right now. Uh, all ready to tackle some new topics with you guys, as well as explore like the cultural depth of Singapore. And that's something I really miss, actually. So today, we're going to be talking about a really cool historic monument to Singapore. It is the Post Office Savings Bank. I think most of us have seen it around in one way or another. You said it's a historical topic I would actually say it's somewhat cultural because it's so embedded and you know the daily life of a Singaporean almost all of us have some level of relationship with the POSB because it was one of the mainstay banks you know when we were growing up now there's a lot more banks in Singapore I think that's because of, of how much Singapore's opened up to the various financial services but back in the day, the POSB was like a cornerstone of every family's financial planning. Oh yeah, definitely. And even for us, right, for the both of us, we grew up in a time where POSB was on the rise. But little did we know, or little did I know at least, actually set all the way back in colonial times. According to DBS, actually, uh, the Development Bank of Singapore, uh, with their acquisition of POSB in 1998, uh, the two banks control about 60% market share in savings deposits and more than 4 million customers in Singapore alone. Actually, if you think about that, it's quite crazy. That means they're serving 60 plus percent of Singaporeans. That's a huge proportion. If anything happened to them, that's a lot of money that's just going to go poof. <laughs> yeah, without them, <laughs> I don't know like what kind of shape would be in in this, in this present time. Maybe one thing to just point out here, right? Because you mentioned the development back of Singapore, the DBS. People conflate the DBS and the POSB, mostly because you can use the same ATM to draw money for both accounts, right? <laughs> exactly. but, but the thing is, the DBS has actually started off a very different purpose. We'll talk about it probably in a different episode, but DBS started off with a developmental approach, right? The idea was we want to use the bank as a way to invest into projects, as a way to encourage economic growth in Singapore. Whereas the POSB was primarily started as a savings bank. And so it was started with the intent to help people in Singapore actually build up a savings attitude and to, in some ways, prepare for financial planning. It's great that you mentioned it because they, they serve two very different functions. Uh, in my research, when we looked at DBS, it really is a top-down approach uh, to creating and stimulating the economy. While POSB's roots, uh, this, you know, they started up as the post office uh, service department on 1st of January in 1877. So you must imagine this is during like, the whole uh, British colonial time. So the operations came under the jurisdiction of the postmaster general. So, you know, I like to call him the head mailman. So students were encouraged to save their pocket money by buying and pasting postage stamps on POSB cards. And once the card was filled with stamps, they could then present it to the post office to credit their POSB accounts. So that's kind of, you know, the relationship between the postal part of the POSB and the banking side of things. Between 1877 and 1940, you know, the POSB actually enjoyed a lot of steady growth. The numbers are quite interesting because they seem very small to us, but back in the day, it must be insane, uh, where it grew from 211 accounts in 1877 
to 57,000 accounts in 1940. Wow. Having people to put their money away <laughs> and not hold it on their own and placing it in the trust of a bank, pretty revolutionary for its time. That's a really good point, Elliot, because if you think about back in the day, right, for someone to actually say, hey, all this money that I've earned, I'm going to trust someone else to keep it safe rather than to put it under my bed. That was actually a pretty big deal. It was actually a big effort on the colonial government to actually be able to, to take all that money in and to, to provide that assurance to all these customers. I think the other thing about these numbers that you mentioned, right, is that it actually also maps quite well to the growth in Singapore. If you think about it, from 211 accounts to 57,000 accounts in 1940, that's actually a good indicator of the level of growth. The total deposits also increased from 19,862 in 1877 to 14.3 million straight dollars. So, you know, even if you account for inflation, that's a huge growth and it also maps well to the economic growth. The amount of money that's being poured in and people are able uh, to accumulate it in an institution. I think it speaks a lot uh, to the importance of uh, the British Strait Settlement back in the day. So on 1st of January, 1949, the enactment of the Savings Banks Ordinance of 1948 separated Singapore's POSB from other post office savings banks in Malaya. As part of like the reorganization, uh, POSB assets and liabilities were divided between Singapore and the Federated Malay States. However, overall operations of the Singapore POSB remain under the jurisdiction of the Postmaster General of Malaya, and management and control of POSB was transferred to the Postmaster General of Singapore in 1966, a year after the island became independent. So it took us a long while to kind of break away from colonial governance of the banks. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, it had to happen sometime sooner or later. The moment we became independent, it had to happen. Yeah, it had to happen. <laughs> uh, between 1949 and 1955, the number of accounts with POSB more than doubled. This was a huge shift, actually, from 74,246 to about 154,668. And you can imagine the total deposits also increased. We're starting to see like numbers uh, jump up significantly from 27.4 million uh, at that point, it's like Malayan dollars, right? Uh, to 57.6 million Malayan dollars. This seems like a really good amount, um, but the deposits fell below the $50 million mark from 1957 and then continued to decline further after that to $37.4 million, uh, by the end of 1966. So, during that movement towards independence, somehow the amount of deposits seemed to decrease. And it's probably because as people were having their own lines being drawn, like, okay, some people move to Malaya, settle there, some would remain in Singapore, money is going to shift around. Independence isn't always the most optimistic climate that you want to be in. Any political sort of like overhaul or a political change is going to affect the amount of money you want to place within a country. We tend to think of Singapore's independence move as this huge, courageous, brave move but actually to the rest of the world they were probably like these guys are crazy yeah, right crazy. it's a small country what the heck are they doing yeah yeah yeah. i mean we had Lee Kuan Yew cry on screen so not the, not the happiest side to the rest of the world there was going to be a need for rebranding for new agendas to come into play uh, as singapore became independent and had to work alongside probably our biggest bank at that point in time. Let's take it up after independence. When Singapore stepped up its industrialization program after 1965, Minister for Finance Go Keng Sui identified domestic savings as one of the ways to promote the growth of industries. Such savings could provide the government with a non-inflationary source of funds for national development. And so in order to promote domestic savings through POSB, the trend of decreasing deposits with the bank had to be reversed. 
So what did they do? In 1968, a savings bank committee was formed to look into ways to promote savings through the POSB, chaired by Chief Mailman Postmaster General M. Bala Subramanian. The committee was made up of Elizabeth Sam from the Ministry of Finance, Han Kang Hong, a lecturer at the Singapore Polytechnic, and two prominent businessmen, Tan Tech Shui and Lim Su Peng. So I, I think the composition of this committee says something, right? It wasn't seen as a purely financial move. It was seen as, in some ways, a community move, a cultural move that they had to make. So they brought in people from the education side. They brought in people from the business side to really be able to think about how to improve the savings rate in Singapore. The committee held its first meeting on 15 March 1968, completed its report on 27 April 1968, and the report was accepted by the government in July of that same year with recommendations on how to increase deposits. This savings bank committee will later be reconstituted into a permanent advisory committee for the POSB. The the big idea is that uh, rather than borrow money from someone else, they wanted to make use of the money that its citizens had, right? And by having this pool of money available that they could then use as as something to leverage to to go into investments, to go into development, uh, it was a cheaper source of funds compared to borrowing from, let's say, other developed countries or from you know, other banks overseas, right? So it worked for the government, but they used domestic savings as a way to achieve that. And of course, it also helps citizens to have a savings uh, account. I'm really glad that you work in economics, Rovic. I think this is a, it was a great start for Singapore, uh, just out of independence, trying to strategically move Singaporeans uh, and the people residing in Singapore to increase their deposit amounts. So some of the key recommendations implemented included raising on-demand withdrawal limits from $200 once every seven days to $500 once every three days. So one of the things we need to appreciate is that actually we're quite spoiled by today's banking environment, right? There's a lot of convenience, a lot of accessibility that we have these days. But actually back then, you know, you have to remember, especially for developing countries where the banking system wasn't as well developed yet, this idea of being able to take money as and when you please is actually quite a scary thing because imagine if everyone takes out money quite regularly, right? And you have a bank run of sorts. All of a sudden, the bank doesn't have enough money and they default. So stuff like having a withdrawal limit of $200 once every seven days was actually quite a norm in some ways to prevent such bankrupts. But then in order to increase convenience, in order to increase competitiveness, to say, hey, put your money in POSB instead, increasing it to 500 once every three days was a way to actually say, hey, we want to create convenience and comfort for you to put money with us. They had to regulate the amount of money that was going out of the banks as well back in the day is what you're saying. Right. But this increase from 200 to 500 is actually a big deal because they're taking some risk here. They're saying, hey, like you can take more money and you can take it more regularly, but we're hoping that by doing that, you'll also prefer to put your money with us. Right, because of the convenience, you just want to stay on longer. doesn't really change your uh, day-to-day habits. Oh, I, I get it now. I get it now. Cool. I think on top of that, uh, some of the strategies that they use to increase deposits, and I can see these are all methods of convenience, right? So they provided longer banking hours, uh, exempting interest earned on POSB savings accounts from income tax. I think that's, that sounds amazing. And accepting non-Romanized signatures for operating accounts. So that means like they could have those Chinese those red stamp kind of signatures. Even more than that, they encourage the young to save by creating these student gift account schemes and uh, gave an additional $5 to any POSB student account with a minimum balance of $5. Yeah, that's, that's actually a lot. Eh? It means you're matching one for one. A savings competition was organized among all government and government-aided schools with the incentive of a POSB lucky draw. A publicity campaign was also started to introduce the newly energized bank. I don't know when you were a kid, but when I was a kid, 
<laughs> I just turned 30 yesterday. So like, really, I can say that with all confidence. When I was a kid, I remember they had this QSB squirrel dude, like it was a mascot. And uh, they would encourage us to save by giving us those passbooks, those bank passbooks. And if you met certain criteria, right, they would give you like extra money or something and they would show you like, oh, congratulations, you saved 50 bucks. And I was like, wow, dang, I, get, I got like 50 cents on that $50. And you know, one of the things that I remember is when I was growing up, it was, you know, I'm the, I'm the oldest in my family. I have two siblings, but it was almost like a rite of passage whenever one of my siblings was of the right age, my parents would take them to the bank, open up, you know, a kid's bank account. They would give them that passbook that you mentioned with the squirrel on it. Uh, and it was it was something that we always like enjoyed holding on to. I never understood the numbers that were in it. It was like, okay, I have I have some numbers, but you you also never actually felt like it was yours, like you always felt like it was your parents, <laughs> rather. But but it was it was a big deal, right? It was this habit of hey. You're, you have money to your name. It's important that you save. It's important that you take care of it. And that's, in some ways, credit to these schemes and initiatives that the POSB rolled out from the very beginning uh, that continues to this day, actually. I think that's that's actually a very interesting point, that they always try to engage the community. It's, it's a big part of why the POSB, uh, usually you'll see the branch offices stuck in very uh, the bigger branch offices at least in heartland components in Singapore if you remember uh, right after independence we said that the deposits fell the accounts fell but actually after all of these publicity and measures that were rolled out in 1969 the POSB attracted 174,506 new accounts compared to just 10,000 in 1966 the bank's deposits jumped from 37.4 million in 1966 to 57.7 million in 1969. So that's actually a huge credit, again, for a newly independent country, for it to actually assure its residents that, hey, even though we're new, even though we're independent, you can trust us to put your money with us. Then managing to uh, get deposits to even jump uh, in a span of three years, to me, is a, is a very good telltale sign, which is actually really good because that kind of confidence and that kind of engagement is what propelled the momentum to let POSB become a stat board, a statutory board in itself. So at the first live televised broadcast of the POSB Lucky Draw in September 1970, uh, Minister for Communications, Yong Nyuk Lin, announced and that the POSB will become a stat board. Uh, Yong explained you know, that the move will give the bank greater flexibility in providing more efficient services to its customers, uh, thereby allowing it to become a, more of a viable financial institution. The POSB bill was subsequently introduced in Parliament on 30th July 1971 to turn POSB into said stat board. Following the enactment of the Act, the POSB ceased to be a branch of the Postal Services Department, although the bank's link with the post offices remained for many, many years, as did its ties with the Ministry of Communications. Community banking and neighborhood banking has always had a very strong relationship with the postal services, not just in Singapore, in, uh, you know, in different parts of the world that I've been to. It's almost common for a post office to have a bank service, right? And, and a big reason for that is because these are where people are going anywhere, um, especially in the neighborhoods, right? Post office services normally have the network already in place. And so neighborhood banking just becomes a natural extension for them to continue to provide a service to its customers. Most of the, the big banks, right? So if you think of a DBS um, as an example in Singapore, but 
globally, also the other banks, right? When they do uh, their major banking services, it's normally in the city capital, but then they don't get access to a lot of the neighborhoods out there. So it was a natural starting point for the POSB to be as part of the postal service department. But later on, as uh, first of all, because Singapore is very small, and so this idea of rural networks don't actually make sense, right? It's easy for us to justify to say, actually, we can centralize a lot of the operations. We can see it as more of a, of a central service we provide to Singapore. Uh, and maybe more importantly, uh, the idea was that we want to push some government initiatives. And so rather than have this tension between a postal service operation, which probably has some agendas that they want to achieve that may not necessarily align. Uh, Let's put it as a statutory board, put it under a government mandate, have the governance in place, as you mentioned, so that they can then drive some of these government initiatives. I always remember that the post offices overseas, the reason why banking was so integrated to them is because, you know, you'd send money. And when you send money, it's easy to use the post offices, existing networks, wire transfers and digital transfers. These are all just starting to build up over time. So when people were sending money, sometimes it was literally, uh, sometimes actually sending cash and sending gold across uh, across counties, across towns, in order to make sure that it represented the ledgers that they were having. Yeah, I forget that there was a time when digital banking doesn't exist. It, didn't, it, it wasn't around, right? So uh, we weren't wiring money, we were actually sending physical cash uh, across these places so nice to know that you know the government actually decided like okay they're going to step in and intervene and try to evolve that system or leverage uh, what what was already there so as an independent statutory corporation POSB was run by a board of directors who were appointed by the Ministry for Communications Tan Chok Kian was named as the first chairman of the reconstituted POSB and head of its boards for seven other directors. So after becoming a statutory board, POSB went about introducing a new look, improved facilities and better services. A logo that depicted the letters POSB in the shape of a key was adopted in April 1972. I think uh, a lot of us remember this logo. It's a very iconic you know, POSB logo. Uh, and that same month, POSB opened a new fully air-conditioned branch at Topayo Central. In June 1972, the bank established separate savings bank counters at 21 post offices to give customers prompt, efficient, and personalized services. And specially trained POSB girls wearing golden colored jackets were assigned to run these new counters. POSB started computerizing its manual accounting system in October 1972. And with this raft of upgraded services, the bank achieved stellar results. By the end of 1972, POSB had over 600,000 depositors and deposits increased from 57.7 million in 1969 to almost double at 125 million in 1972. So when they were saying specially trained POSB girls wearing golden colored jackets were assigned to run these new counters, in some ways this was also in the peak of you know this this movement to empower women in the workforce uh, to leverage. Uh, women uh, as part of the workforce to say, hey, everyone can be productive, everyone can contribute to the economy, and more importantly, everyone can earn a livelihood for themselves, right? So, so this is, in some ways is actually quite a progressive move to include women in the workforce. All these local companies were trying like, okay, can we make an iconic version of us so that when people see us in the street, they'll be like, oh yeah, this, this person's definitely an SQ girl, or like, hey, this person's definitely working with POSB. It was going to be a strong identity marker, and I think this is really good in terms of confidence, right? When you're willing to invest in something a lot more long-term like branding. And I agree with you. Whether it's the Sarong Kabayas with the SQ girls or the golden jackets for the POSB uh, counter uh, woman, right? The idea was, was this, hey, here's a new era of Singapore. Here's something you can recognize, something you can be proud of. And in, in a lot of ways, it was the rise of the global corporate, right? <laughs> like around the world. 
uh, corporations were starting to develop the sense of, of embeddedness and identity. And in Singapore, they, it was no stranger. We talk about branding identity, but one thing that the banks continue to do was its computerization drive with the installation of online banking terminals at various branches, even in 1974. So we were pretty forward-looking in the sense that we wanted to modernize the way we did banking. And it all started with the POSB gyro service, which we still use still today. It enabled customers to settle their utility bills through automatic deductions from their POSB accounts, uh, a, a thing which we actually take for granted quite quite a fair bit, I think. For them, you know, this, this gyro service was pretty remarkable for its day. And they even introduced a save-as-you-earn or, you know, we love acronyms, right? So the acronym was S-A-Y-E, SAY. <laughs> the SAY scheme uh, that offered bonus interest rates uh, that was introduced to encourage wage earners to save regularly. Uh, a subsidiary company, Credit POSB, was also incorporated to encourage home ownership. Its home ownership scheme offered housing loans at good interest rates and longer repayment periods. This is a this is really really helpful actually. POSB obviously uh, grew a lot stronger, and by the end of 1974, the bank had now increased to more than 800,000 savings accounts uh, with deposits totaling to 296.4 million. Uh, all the numbers that we're mentioning, you can you know, it's always been on the rise. Consequently, the government decided that it was more appropriate for the bank to come under the Ministry of Finance rather than the Ministry of Communication. It makes a lot of sense. By the late 1940s, you know, we had started thinking about how can we make this transition. As we all know, the POSB did not stay under the government for too long. In 1988, the government announced that the Development Bank of Singapore, i.e. the DBS, would acquire POSB and its various subsidiaries, including Credit POSB, for $1.6 billion. Minister for Finance Dr. Richard Hu explained to Parliament that the merger would enable POSB to compete better with full-fledged commercial banks, as well as to better serve more sophisticated customers, adding that the move was in line with the government's policy of encouraging local banks to merge and consolidate their operations. In in order to develop into sizable banks to compete internationally. The acquisition was justified on the basis that the government owned a major stake in DBS and could be continued to be entrusted with continuing POSB's social responsibilities, again, whether it's increasing the domestic savings rate, whether it's providing a baseline level of accessible and convenient community banking for people. And, and, and the POSB, as we know now, still does a lot of that. The sale was officially sanctioned by Parliament with the passing of the Post Office Savings Bank of Singapore, transfer of undertaking the dissolution bill on 12 October 1998. Uh, I actually found some additional research that shows that when the merger first happened, it was not a hit among Singaporeans. Actually, when the conversion into a full commercial bank was announced, home loan borrowers had to wave goodbye to the cheap mortgages that they had been enjoying. Also, a government tax change meant that POSB was no longer the only bank with tax exemptions on interest paid to savers, and there was also an ongoing shutdown of POSB branches and ATMs. People were worried that the popular POSB was going down in order to favor the merger. Both banks also had very different cultures. DBS actually suffered a loss from the merger. But it was only because the consistent support of the government, again, they, they continued to provide the messaging that, you know, POSB and DBS will continue to serve Singaporeans. There was a social priority at the end of the day. And they also maintained the ATMs uh, that the POSB managed to survive till today. Thanks for putting a dampen on the whole, you know, optimism. But at least that's the reality of things. I'm sure through strife and through, uh, a, I would say, a merger that, 
it was going to happen sooner or later. And for the betterment of Singapore, it all worked out in the very end. So still a happy ending. And this merger represents a couple of things at, at maybe a, a national and societal level, right? First of all, it was probably one in many attempts by the government to, to denationalize a lot of the things that it had, right? To privatize it, to bring it back so that it's competitive uh, and it can serve maybe more commercial needs as well. Because as we can imagine, as Singapore starts to become a major financial center and a major financial hub, it needs to have the you know the ballast in order to compete with major banks globally, right? You have banks like Credit Suisse, you have banks like JP Morgan coming into Singapore, and you don't want the POSB to be propped up purely on government support. Uh, the other part of it, of course, is when you're able to combine, you're also able to uh, provide a wider suite of services to customers. So as we know, one simple example, is that a DBS customer or a POSB customer could use each other's ATMs, right? Uh, and, and that's a network effect. Uh, you can also access services across each bank, right? But depending on whether you're doing more of a community banking kind of need or you're doing maybe more of a financial services need, right? Maybe investments. So, so these are the kind of stuff that, that the merger did uh, enable. But of course, it had to wipe out certain things. That's actually a lot of interesting I guess, factoids about this bank, which, you know, we see it all the time and everywhere, but little we know just the importance and significance that it holds and the way it actually holds our country up, I feel, uh, for, for the entire process of being here. The merger was in the end, right? POSB still has to continue being relevant, still has to continue adapting to what it means to be a community bank in today's digital age, in today's age where uh, attitudes towards personal finance are changing. So some of the things that I thought was interesting, I'll just say one program that the POSB runs uh, that, that I think is quite cool is the POSB Smart Buddy. So the POSB Smart Buddy is is an example. It's it's the full it's the world's first in school savings and payments wearable on your child's wrist. Actually, I heard about it from a couple of peers a while ago, and it basically allows your children to wear a watch and to tap to pay in school and at selected merchants. Your parents are the ones that are controlling, you know, the amount of money in, in that bank account. But basically, rather than give your kid cash, you just use the watch to. To, to pay for stuff and, and actually your parent gets to see the, the financial trends, the spending trends and be able to advise on you know living and saving habits. Uh, there are some critiques of this, right? First of all, being that if everything just looks like a number, the, the, the feeling of holding cash Right, in some ways, also teaches you to value it. So, if it's just a number on a screen, actually, maybe you become more likely to just spend all your money very quickly and then ask for for money back from your parents. So, but these are some of the things that that the POSB is doing in order to continue to provide services to families and communities. I was so impressed by some of these institutions that are entrenched in our colonial past, the way they evolve. Like when we talk about the library as well, we always forget how how much investment we've placed in them and how much they have provided help and support for community growth and cultural growth. POSB is one of those, I guess, institutions which I didn't expect to have that uh, play in the cultural space. But, you know, proven wrong once again, as with every episode. It's always a serendipitous moment where you're like, this was, you know, when I think of financial institutions, I'm pretty much, uh, I'm a liberal arts student, so my relationship with capitalism is a very tenuous one. Uh, <laughs> 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 but when I look at this and I think, well, you know, the bank really does, at some level, uh, care about community and it's there is a betterment of society at the end of the day. Well, on that note, 
you know, this was a pretty fun, lighthearted episode. Thanks for doing the research on this, Elliot. We encourage you to save money because, you know, we're going through some really tough times right now, but we will get through it together. I hope you're all having a great 2021 so far. Everyone take care. We'll see you in the next episode. Once again, as always, if you like our episode, do comment on our social media platforms we're on instagram and elliot and i both have individual instagram twitter accounts we're also on facebook uh, as well and you know if you do want to support us share it with your friends we have a whole broad set of episodes that probably appeals to all your friends in some way or another so share